Hello, everyone. Welcome to our Eli podcast. I'm online partner with Hay Solicitors and chair of ELAI. Today, we're going to be discussing the latest cases on injunctions and getting a view from our experience panel on the current injunction landscape. We'll be looking at key themes and hopefully it will spark some ideas for us all in our own practices. The list of cases will be sent out with the podcast so you will have access to those. So firstly, I'd like to welcome Catherine McVeigh, Barrister, ELI Committee Member and Secretary of the EBA. Catherine is going to be talking to us about no-fault terminations, conduct and performance injunctions, and also then whether or not you can get a injunction in an investigation. So welcome, Catherine. Thanks, Anne. I'd also um, like to welcome Oshin Quinn, who's been in practice at the bar for 29 years. He specialises in employment law and defamation. He graduated from UCD in 1989. He's an LLM in uh, labour law from the University of London. He's a CEDAR accredited mediator and he regularly acts as an independent investigator in employment law disputes. He was called to the inner bar in 2008 and is a former Lord Mayor of Dublin. Uh, Oshin has also been involved in a number of the cases that we'll be talking about today. Um, But specifically today, he's going to give us his insights into redundancy injunctions and whether we have any windows in that uh, redundancy injunction space uh, that we can um, access the courts on. So welcome to you, Oshin. Thanks, Anne. And finally then, last but not least, we have Brendan Kerwin. Brendan is a senior counsel. He took silk in 2019. Brendan uh, says that this podcast marries two of his interests and elements of his practice, so employment law and injunctions. And he was very industrious during the lockdown where he wrote the third edition of his book on injunctions, law and practice. So uh, welcome, Brendan. And Brendan, at the end, is going to bring us all back down to earth and talk to us about uh, costs and injunctions. So we look forward to talking to you about that, Brendan. So firstly, Catherine, um, I'll come to you. And just if you want to maybe talk to us about the whole area of no-fault injunctions and where the courts are at present. Yeah, thanks, Anne. So I suppose the starting point there, which uh, many listeners will be aware of, is the the High Court decision of Grenay and Electronic Arts Limited. And that's the decision of the High Court of the 21st of December of uh, 2018. Um, And and conveniently, actually, Oisín was for the plaintiff in that matter, uh, uh, Mr. Grenay. So just by way of background and to remind ourselves of that case, Mr. Grenay was the senior director of the defendant company. And he received a letter from his employer about four months into his employment, terminating his position following a complaint by another director about him. So uh, as I think as it happened, I think on a Thursday, uh, the plaintiff uh, went into the High Court and successfully applied ex parte to Mr Justice Allen to restrain the defendant from taking any further steps to implement the dismissal and also um, to stop them appointing anyone else to his role until the hearing of the interlocutory injunction. And then it appears over the weekend, there was some change in tack in the company where uh, on the following Monday, then the defendant wrote to the plaintiff and withdrew its earlier letter of termination and instead furnished him with a notice of no fault termination. And the company said that they'd they'd pay him in, in lieu of notice. So I suppose in response, then the plaintiff went back into the High Court and applied to Mr. Justice O'Connor seeking interlocutory injunction relief 
restraining his dismissal and arguing that the no-fault termination was um, what I like best most about this this case of what, what Ushin described it as, it, it was cloaked in new and relatively see-through clothes. So the High Court granted the plaintiff an interlocutory injunction and Mr Justice O'Connor stated that the no-fault termination was a cynical contrivance. Um, so I suppose that's very b- based on the facts of that case, but the, the, the judge went on then to say that he was he was most impressed by the uh, cogent submissions by uh, Ushin counsel for the plaintiff in his submissions on Mahalingam and held that his see-through clothes argument persuaded the court. And but that was particularly having regard to the deliberate decision, the court said, uh, to gloss over the serious impact on the plaintiff's reputation and that the, therefore the, the plaintiff had established that strong case required for, for such an injunction. So I suppose, Anne, that, that case is an important reminder of the significance of procedures in dismissing an employee on a no-fault basis, particularly where the dismissal is in reality on the basis of misconduct, although dressed up um, as a no-fault termination. Thanks, Catherine. I think um, that's interesting because I think often for employers, it's um, an attractive option, particularly for senior employees, where an employer can know that an employment will end, they can avoid the publicity of the high court um, and avoid going through a procedure. And typically, you know, how employers seem to approach this is that they do the no-fault termination, followed by the termination agreement, which is negotiated between the parties, um, and all going well, that matters are wrapped up between the parties. But I suppose we, of course, always have to be mindful of the Unfair Dismissals Acts. And the recent Labour Court case from the 12th of May is a real reminder to us all that with a no-fault termination, you always have the Unfair Dismissals Act at the back door. And in, in that case, Emster and, and Oberman, it was a Labour Court case, and that both sides had appealed the WRC decision. They had agreed that dismissal wasn't in dispute, so that the court just had to look at um, a number of net areas. For the purposes of this talk, there was some good commentary in it around reinstatement, but in terms of the dismissal and the award, ultimately they decided that compensation was an appropriate remedy and the employer was asked to pay €232,000 to um, Mr Oberman. So I suppose a timely reminder of the impact of that legislation and that um, a no-fault termination in itself may seem attractive, but ultimately, you know, there's always the risks of the Unfair Dismissals Act. Catherine? Do you think that given the risks of an unfair dismissals claim for a no-fault termination, is following a performance or conduct process a better route for employers? Yeah, I think it's interesting. And and that Labour Court case is very interesting. I suppose the Labour Court in that case said that it's hard to actually envisage a dismissal dismissal that's more uh, unfair. So I suppose that's that's the approach the Labour Court was taking. And as you said, Anne, you know, I would encourage any uh, members listening to go back in and and just read that judgment, because as you say, there's a really useful uh, journey through the law on reinstatement. But just in relation to your question about the the performance misconduct, I suppose um, the, the first ca- the first case in that in that uh, respect is the Court of Appeal judgment, and um, the recent Court of Appeal judgment in O'Donovan and Oversee Technology. So, I might just briefly go into the background of that because it gives us a good idea of that difference, um, the different standards between the poor performance test versus a misconduct. So, that judgment of the Court of Appeal was the sixteenth of February of this year, and that was an appeal of, of Mr. Justice Keane's judgment um, in the High Court, where he granted interlocutory 
temporary injunctive relief to an employee who was dismissed. And the court went so far as to order that the defendant pay the plaintiff's salary until the trial. Just interestingly, the plaintiff was still serving his probationary period at the time of the dismissal. And indeed, the Court of Appeal actually said that that was a critical fact in in this particular case. So just very briefly, the, 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 the Court of Appeal then allowed the defendant's appeal um, and overturned the High Court decision. And they relied on a number of cases um, that we'd be all uh, quite familiar with, but two in particular, I suppose, as a reminder to members, and that's the, the Merck, Sharp and Dome case and the Mahalingam and HSE. Um, and it's helpful, and that you've, you've um, uh, said at the start of this podcast that we'll have those uh, citations underneath the link uh, for members to refer to. But just uh, the Court of Appeals at the starting point there is, is Merck, Sharp and Dome. So when considering an application for an interlocutory injunction, the first matter the court should consider is whether the plaintiff was successful at trial, a permanent injunction would likely be granted. And then if not, then it would be extremely unlikely that an interlocutory injunction seeking the same relief would be granted. And then, of course, the, the, the Court of Appeal relied upon the Supreme Court case of Mahalingam, um, where the Supreme Court held that the, an application to restrain, restrain the termination of a contract amended to a mandatory injunction. And therefore, the onus is on the plaintiff uh, to establish a strong case that he's likely to, see, to succeed at trial. So in, as the Court of Appeal, relying on those two cases, held that the plaintiff hadn't established a strong case, as per the, the Mahalingam, that he was dismissed for misconduct, but rather he was dismissed for poor performance. And also he, he hadn't established that he was likely to obtain a permanent injunction at trial. And that was as per the Merck, Sharp and Dome principles. So the court is very clear then that an employee or a court can't imply a right to fair procedures regarding an assessment of an employee's performances by an employer other than misconduct. So that has to be the bar is misconduct. Um, and Ms. Justice Costello in the Court of Appeal interestingly, interestingly said that you know, there may be other exceptions to that, but they don't arise here. And I will leave that to another case. So I suppose that, that's quite interesting for future cases. So there's also, in relation to the misconduct poor performance, I'll just briefly then mention the uh, just two further cases, the, the Hughes and MongoDB and Bradshaw and Murphy. Um, and Hughes and MongoDB was a judgment of 2014, uh, again, of Mr. Justice Keane, where the employer dismissed the employee as a no-fault termination and paid the employee in lieu of notice. And then the plaintiff sought the injunc- an injunction from the, the High Court and argued that it was actually a poor performance dismissal and the dismissal was damaging uh, a da- a damaging to his good name. And I think he, he based that, uh, Brendan reminded me this morning, I think he based that on a, a phone call between the uh, plaintiff and his manager on the day of his dismissal where some performance-related issues were raised. But the employer simply said that the employee wasn't a good fit um, and there was no issue of poor performance and misconduct. And the court held that the plaintiff just didn't meet the first test of Mahalingam and didn't establish a strong case that he's likely to su- succeed a trial. And in that case, then, finally, Mr. Justice Keane referred to uh, the judgment in Bradshaw and Murphy, which is another useful reminder in this context. And in that case, the plaintiff claimed that he'd been dismissed on grounds of misconduct and that fair procedures weren't followed. And uh, the defendant opposed the, the plaintiff injunction, the, the, the plaintiff's application for an injunction uh, restraining his dismissal on grounds arguing that they couldn't be inhibited 
from exercising their common law entitlement to terminate his employment in accordance with his contract. Um, and the court essentially agreed with the defendant and, and noted an undertaking that the defendant made uh, not to dismiss the plaintiff on grounds of misconduct. And, held, and, and the court held there that although there had re- originally been allegations of misconduct and a threat of dismissal against uh, the employee, the employer wasn't precluded from dismissing him uh, in line with his contract. So I suppose, and that could, that could be distinguished from the case we started out there, Grenay, Oshin's case, um, where there was, a, the, there was a change of tax. So I suppose a termination had taken place following allegations of misconduct and the plaintiff has successfully, successfully been granted an injunction and then that was withdrawn and that was followed by no fault termination. So all these cases, Anna, I suppose, are very much based on the, their in individual facts and they're very uh, facts specific. And I think isn't that theme kind of keeps coming through in terms of injunctions that the facts of the case can often be very important. And then finally, to discuss with you, Catherine, your views on investigations and injunctions. Can an employee get an, an injunction midway to an investigation if they're unhappy with how it's been carried out? Or is there risks with that? Yeah, so I suppose that, that's probably a little, I'll be more brief in relation to that because I think that the law is quite settled there. Um, and there's only one case that I, I'd refer members to, and that's obviously the, the Supreme Court decision of Rowland and on Post, and that was a, a decision of March 2017. So in that case, just, just as a, a reminder, uh, Mr. Rowland brought an injunction seeking to restrain on Post from continuing an investigation. And Mr. Justice Clark in that case said that in a great many cases, it would be premature for a court to intervene in an investigation and reach a conclusion until the process had ended. And he based that on two reasons. So the first reason was because procedural problems in an investigation can be corrected um, either at that point or a later point. And also because there has to be significant margin of appreciation afforded to decision makers and to employees as to how the process is to be conducted. And I suppose that makes sense uh, that, you know, lawyers like us won't be running in at every juncture trying to stop an investigation taking place. But Mr. Justice Clark did actually importantly set out exceptions to that. And he said he, a court might be able to intervene in an investigation when the process has gone irremediably wrong. So, you know, where there's practicalities to stopping the process continuing because it's turned into basically a fruitless exercise, um, which almost certainly uh, will be quashed. So in that regard, the Supreme Court set out um, the exception, the test for the exception there of stopping an investigation is really a a three-part test, as I see it, that um, the process has gone wrong, that there's nothing that can be done to rectify it, and that it is inevitable that any adverse conclusion of the process would be unsustainable in law. So that's a very clear cut test there set out in Roland and on Post. So I hope that's of some help to listeners. Yes, thank you, Catherine. And um, Oshin, just to come on to you in relation to injunctions and redundancies, what is the general position of the courts on redundancy injunctions? Thanks, Anne. Well, I think it's a natural follow on from the topic you were discussing with Catherine, where employers with an eye to perhaps avoiding any risk of an injunction can find the no-fault termination attractive by simply giving notice and if they're allowed under the contract as they usually are paying in lieu. But of course they do face the difficulty then of an unfair dismissal action. So redundancy can then appear to be potentially you know, the ideal reason for a dismissal because it is a, a fair ground for dismissal under the Unfair Dismissals Acts. So I think the question that uh, you're posing is to what extent could somebody get 
an interlocutory injunction to restrain an employer implementing a redundancy. And just to bear in mind, redundancy can arise because the, the need for the uh, employee is no longer there, there's less work of the type they were doing, or the work has been reorganized. So it, it, it must be to be genuine, it must be objective and unrelated to the person, it must be related to the business needs. So typically an employee can have two complaints. One they can say is, listen, this is personal to me. I have been picked because of reasons unrelated to the business. I'm a thorn in their side or they, they're unhappy with me or there are, some unconcer- there are some concerns I've never had a chance to address. So we see that a very good case for, for people to look at is the Carney against Byrne Wallace case. And I think it's worth the listenership looking at both the Court of Appeal decision in July 2019 and the High Court decision of Miss Justice Baker back in 2017. And in that case, Mr. Carney was an associate solicitor in Byrne Wallace from 2006. He had a fairly prolonged period of sick leave for which he was paid. And then he had a second period of sick leave and he was certified as fit to return to work. But before any action was taken on foot of that, um, the firm made him redundant and paid him in lieu of notice. And he sought an injunction and he was unsuccessful. And both the High Court and the Court of Appeal strongly reaffirmed um, Miss Justice Lafoy's decision from a decade earlier in the well-known case of Nolan and Emo Oil that if you are complaining about whether or not a redundancy is genuine, and in this case he said it wasn't, it was contrived to get rid of him because he had this prolonged period of sick leave and that he'd been fingered for that reason, that if your complaint is it's not genuine or that you've been unfairly selected, the only forum in which to ventilate those arguments is under the statutory uh, redress system, the WRC and the Labour Court as it now is, i.e. bring an unfair dismissive claim where, of course, the employer would still have at least the argument of redundancy uh, to put up. And the reason is it goes back to earlier decisions and cases in England, Eastwood and Magnox, where the courts have said the common law shouldn't be expanded into the statutory regime. So if the Oireachtas has set up a statutory regime which says you can't be unfairly selected for redundancy and redundancy must be genuine, the common law shouldn't go onto that territory. And therefore, the courts will simply not entertain an injunction application, no matter what the employee says about whether it's genuine or not. So I think it's something that's very significant if any solicitor is sitting down with a client who says, look, I'm being made redundant, but I know it's not genuine. You've got a major hurdle. uh, And the reason is set out, I think, very well summarized in both the High Court and then Court of Appeal in the Carney case. And Oshin, after saying all that, I'm going to ask you, and do you think there might be any exceptions, though, to that general position? So is there any window or sliver where you think that a plaintiff may uh, challenge a redundancy? Well, it it is interesting because despite how clear those authorities are, and they are clear, that's not entirely the end of the story. So if, for example, the redundancy is being affected, or because redundancy is a dismissal, if the dismissal is being affected, and there is some breach of contract, such as incorrect notice, or for example, if there are particular corporate governance requirements, because the person can only be dismissed by a decision of the board, if they are also a director and an office holder, there could be additional requirements. And it's obviously worth checking out the constitutional documents of the company in those type of cases. Well, then the courts, in in those narrow examples, the courts have shown a willingness to entertain an injunction, even when the reason for the dismissal is redundancy. And a good example of that is Ms. Justice Lefoy's decision in Birkin Independent Colleges. So 
independent colleges was owned by independent newspapers and Philip Burke was a senior person in that company. And the employer was proposing to make him redundant and to dismiss him by reason of redundancy. But he did obtain an injunction and he was able to identify two breaches of contract that the judge said he had a strong case about. One, he said he was entitled to more notice than they were giving him. And two, he said the person making the decision wasn't the correct entity, that it was actually the major shareholder and not the board of his company. And the judge said that she wouldn't presume how directors following through on their fiduciary duties would act, even though the majority shareholder was the person evincing the intention to affect the dismissal by way of redundancy. So he got an injunction in that case, but on those grounds. And another example, I think, is the Brennan and Irish Pride Bakeries case. Again, this went to the Court of Appeal. Uh, Mr. Justice Gilligan um, in the High Court gave the decision, and then Ms. Justice Finley Gagan in the Court of Appeal. And there the receiver was making the employee plaintiffs redundant. The business was winding down in part, but he gave the incorrect notice they claimed. Now, the argument was from the company on behalf of the receiver, even if we've given the incorrect notice, that's simply a damages point. But the judge in the Court of Appeal said, well, if they had been given the correct notice, which was three months rather than one week, uh, the employees might still be around when there was a transfer of the business. So they could still avail of 2P rights. So therefore, she said it was more than just a case of damages. The, the remedy might be more valuable to them. So there, it is worth exploring those sort of examples and exceptions. And it is discussed quite well by Ms. Justice Baker, actually, in the Carney case, where she identifies the logical distinguishing features of those cases in paragraph 35 of her judgment. So while it is clear, there can be exceptions, even in cases where redundancy is the underpinning reason. Yeah, and that's interesting. But both of those, it's essentially a contract point within a redundancy. But it is no harm always to kind of look to see, is there an angle where you're saying, look, we know it's a redundancy, but actually we're coming in on, on this specific point. Yeah. And um, Oshin, finally, what if an employee has been terminated and they've initiated proceedings at the WRC? But for example, they won't receive a hearing date for a number of months. Is an injunction an option while they wait for that hearing date? Well, well, that's a good question because that is a practical problem people are likely to face when the employee comes in looking for advice. They say, well, hold on, if I have to go to the WRC, as you're telling me, because of the Carney case, my dismissal will have taken effect. Everyone will know I'm gone and it'll be months before my claim is heard by an adjudication officer. And then I have to appeal to the Labour Court and that could put me into next year. That's very unsatisfactory. Can I go into court to get an injunction? just to hold the position until my claim is heard. And the short answer to that, and it's stark, is no. And um, Mr. Justice Allen, in a case of Power v. HSE from last year, gives a clear judgment explaining why that's so, that the view of the courts as set out in his judgment is that the, the courts will not give a collateral equitable remedy to give someone protection pending the person utilising rights under a statutory scheme. Now, the only thing to say about, about that, and his judgment is clear on that, is that there may still nonetheless be potentially an argument about that. And just for shorthand, I'll refer to, there's a good discussion of this in our next speaker's book in, in Kerwin on Injunctions, the third edition. And paragraphs 959 through to uh, 967. This is at page 574 of the book. 
Brendan there discusses that issue. And he does point out how in a non-employment case called Dowling and the Minister for Finance, Mr. Justice Clark uh, in the Supreme Court, I think not then as Chief Justice, gives a judgment which indicates that the courts can give a remedy and an equitable relief to somebody pending them bringing forward a statutory claim under a piece of legislation. So it may be that if someone is willing to run that argument again, there may be some basis for doing so. Uh, I mean, Mr. Justice Allen did say that Mr. Justice Hogan's dicta in Holland and McGrath was incorrect. Mr. Justice Hogan is now returning back to the Supreme Court. So I wouldn't say there's completely no uh, prospect of advancing the argument. But as things stand, uh, the position is, I mean, the prudent advice would be to say you're facing a very uphill battle. And, and the law as it stands is you will not be given an interlocutory injunction to hold the position while you await the outcome of a statutory claim. Thanks, Oshin. And I think if anyone is going to bring that challenge, they will have to go out and get those paragraphs from Brendan's book. And um, Brendan, just to bring you in here then, um, I suppose I think it's fair to say that one of the really significant changes over the past 18 months is how the courts are approaching the question of costs of interlocutory injunction applications. So can you tell us a bit about those changes and how it would impact on litigation? Sure, I, I can tell you quite a bit about the man. So. Thank you to all our listeners for, for tuning in. And I hope that there's quite a bit to this, but I hope it's useful. I think many people's views as to the costs of interlocutory applications have for a long time been informed by a judgment relating to, of all things, the artificial propagation of potato plants. And um, that was a 1997 judgment of Mr. Justice Keane in the case of Dubcap and Microcrop. And he stated in that case that the normal procedure on the hearing of an interlocutory application is to reserve the costs to the trial judge. And there was a logic to that. Matters were often such that they could only be resolved at a full plenary hearing. Matters might come to light by way of discovery, by way of new evidence and so on. So it was quite normal that, that costs would be reserved. And that approach applied not just to cases involving potato plants, but to cases generally, including employment cases. By February of this year, however, in the case of O'Neill and the Commissioner of Angarda Shikona, we're on more familiar territory. That was an employment case about the suspension of a guard as superintendent. Uh, Mr. Justice Allen made clear that, and I quote, it is true that for many years the practice was that the costs of many interlocutory applications, including applications for interlocutory injunctions, would be reserved to the trial judge. But as Pierre J. long ago observed, those days are long gone. And so what I thought might be useful would be just to look at what has happened to explain the shift and a very obvious shift from the dub cap approach to the now approach encapsulated in O'Neill. And I suppose if we go back to 2008, prior to then Order 99 of the rules of the Superior Courts was clear, costs follow the event. There's been quite a number of significant staging posts since then, four I think are worth highlighting. And um, the first is the introduction of the Commercial Court in 2004. That brought with it a change in rules. Now, in and of itself, that's not directly relevant to today's talk. What is relevant is in 2008, the second staging post is that Order 99 was changed and it was changed to reflect the change that had been made with the introduction of the commercial court and the rules in relation to costs in that forum. And what happened was the words costs follow the event were taken out of Order 99. Regardless, people kept on using them forever and a day. 
Um, and a new rule, 1-4-A, was introduced. And mirroring the commercial rule, it provided that the High Court of the Supreme Court, upon determining any interlocutory application, shall make an award of costs, save where it is not possible justly to adjudicate upon liability for costs on the basis of the interlocutory application. And, and it was those words, save where it is not possible justly to adjudicate, that were key. And they were key, but caused a measure, I think, of, of real concern, because you now had a situation where employees were getting told by their lawyers, it's a real risk if you go to court and fail in your interlocutory application, that you're going to be visited with a large bill of costs on the spot. It's not going to be reserved for the trial judge because you can justly adjudicate at that point. Now, in practical terms, that didn't actually really play out because the courts quite cleverly took the words interlocutory applications used in the rules, split it in two, made a distinction between injunction applications and what you might call more general interlocutory applications, discovery, compel replies to particulars, that kind of thing. And referring back to Dubcap, they said, look, it's better to put the costs of the interlocutory injunction applications back to the trial. It's safer to do that. And that was basically how people proceeded. For that, there were words of warning. Mr. Justice Clark, for example, in the case of AIB and Diamond in 2011, was saying, well, look, you might have to bring a bigger degree of analysis to bear. What has your interlocutory application turned on? Is it the merits of the case that are going to be revisited at the trial? Unsafe to go near costs? Is it something that turns on the balance of convenience, the adequacy of damages? They're not going to come up again at trial. So maybe in those situations, you might look at the question of costs at an earlier stage. Um, but broadly speaking, I think people were still comfortable enough, cost reserved to the trial judge. Third of the staging posts that I think is relevant is the introduction of the Legal Services Regulation Act in 2015, specifically section 169. And that section commenced in October 2019. And under the heading costs follow the event, so that phrase has come back in, albeit by a different route, uh, section 169.1 provides that an entirely successful party is entitled to their costs unless the court otherwise orders. As the fourth staging post that begins to bring everything together, that's the change to Order 99 in December 2019. There was a rejigging of Rule 14A, but for present purposes, that's not material. The only real change was to make reference to the Court of Appeal. But Order 99, Rule 3, now makes specific reference to Section 169.1 of the 2015 Act that we've just looked at. So what seems to have come about is that the revision of Order 99, and in particular, its reference back to uh, Section 169 of the 2015 Act has concentrated minds such that judges are now much more proactive in addressing costs at the interlocutory stage. And there's been something of a perfect storm because it's not just those black letter law changes, if you like. We have a situation where these changes come about just before the pandemic Hearings go online, judgments are being delivered electronically, so you no longer have judgments being delivered in court and costs being applied for, if you like, on the hoof at the end of it. You now have a situation led by the Court of Appeal, where the Court of Appeal was inviting submissions on costs and then delivering mini judgments, if you like, on costs. There was a whole mini industry springing up, such that there was a real focus brought to bear on costs and how the rules and the law actually worked. And, and the other more general factor that seems to have been engaged is the courts, and some judges are quite explicit about this, using costs as a tool to discourage unnecessary um, or inappropriate applications being brought. There are comments, Mr. Justice Toomey, Reiner and Skyscanner, 
talked about consequences for failed applications. Otherwise, he says you're not disincentivizing um, parties from using the courts for tactical and other reasons. So there, there's quite a bit there. There's quite a bit of detail. If you want a really good summary of this, there's a case. It's the judgment of Ms. Justice Butler, Constra Gomez and Dragados, Ireland. It's a niche case about performance bonds. The costs judgment, it's, it's only nine pages long. Of those nine pages, you only need to read the first four unless performance bonds are your bag. Um, but that gives a really good overview of how we've got to this point, looking at the various steps I've looked at there. Now, now I would say that some of your listeners may well be saying, hold on a sec, this all sounds quite familiar. I've heard your man banging on about this before. I have, bluntly. Um, I've given an iteration of this talk. And one thing that struck me in terms of feedback was people saying, oh, gosh, I didn't realize there had been those changes. And that's one of the, I think, uh, byproducts of people not being in court, waiting to get on for hearing, where you're hearing other cases and judgments and whatnot going on in the background, and you, you pick up almost by osmosis, something is happening in relation to costs. That process hasn't happened. People aren't sitting down chatting about cases they've been involved in. And so I think I would be of a slight concern that you know some fairly fundamental changes have kind of almost passed under the radar. Um, so, so I think it's worth emphasizing the importance of these changes for that, I mean, I, I don't want this to be a scare story. There are a number of practical aspects in terms of what judges are now doing. Um, first, there's a case of Thompson and Beautiful Minds crash. Another judgment of Ms. Justice Butler, albeit in the context of a receiver injunction case. And um, she said, look, a trial judge may be in a better position to assess the costs of the interlocutory application. That doesn't mean it's not possible for the judge dealing with the interlocutory application to do so. And in fact, I think the cases bear out the judges at the interlocutory stage are tackling the costs, but they're doing it in a nuanced way. So, for example, the case of Paddy Burke Builders and Tully Viraga Management, Mr. Justice MacDonald made the costs of the defendants to a counterclaim and only the defendants' costs in the cause, an approach that Mr. Justice Keane subsequently followed in Hafiz and CPM Consulting. And he said, look, that was a carefully calibrated approach. And that careful calibration, sophistication, plays out in a number of cases. Ms. Justice Highland, March this year at the Irish Coursing Club and the Minister for Health, she said the justice of the situation was met by the, awarding the respondents 75% of their costs and the remainder of the costs were costs in the cause. Um, the O'Donovan and Oversea Technology case that's already been mentioned, Mr. Justice Keane in the High Court made the plaintiff's costs only costs in the cause. And again, in O'Neill and the Commissioner of Garda Shikona, the case I mentioned previously, Mr. Justice Allen said there'd be no order as to the plaintiff's costs. Any risk of injustice to him in that regard would be avoided by making the defendant's costs of the motion costs in the cause. So it's not a binary costs, no costs. There is a level of sophistication being brought to bear, but it is happening at the interlocutory stage. And that's that's the key point. There's also, of course, the old refuge of a stay. Certainly judges are receptive to stays pending an appeal, but perhaps little more than that. O'Donovan again, Mr. Justice Keane said, yes, I'll give you the stay, but provided you identify specific grounds on which you propose to appeal before I actually grant you the stay. Thanks, Brendan. I suppose for us and for our listeners, that gives rise to the broader point. Is there an argument that employment cases um, should in some sense be approached differently with the cost of the interlocutory injunction applications being reserved? It's, it's, it's a very good and a, and a very practical question. I mean, I, 
The O'Neill and O'Donovan cases would suggest that the courts are not willing to, to kind of carve out employment cases. I think this is something that still has to work itself out because I think, you know, there, there, were, there were a number of benefits and there are a number of benefits to costs being reserved in employment cases. And, and, and there's three I'd identify. And the first is, you know, judges have traditionally been aware of the effect a costs order can have on an employee at an, an, an interlocutory stage. The employee in many cases is already financially stressed because they've just been sacked. To visit costs in them as well, it's it, frankly catastrophic for them. Reserving costs also preserves something of a balance between the parties. I mean, let's be honest, we all know the courts have acknowledged, particularly Mr. Justice Clark, that most employment cases, or certainly the majority of them, will ultimately get resolved after the interlocutory hearing. Putting a costs order in place can, can upset the balance of those negotiations. Putting a costs order in place when parties might go to mediation, which particularly under Ms. Justice Reynolds' directions when she was running the chancery list became very popular and was proactively encouraged by her, that can equally upset the balance of the dynamic in a mediation. And not having a cost order in place or reserving the costs allows people to breathe, gives a little bit of space to negotiations, be they face-to-face -face or in the context of a mediation. And also from a practical perspective, I think it's it's not unfair to say that if you don't award costs at the interlocutory stage, it's less likely that there'll be an appeal of whatever the outcome of the interlocutory application may be. Look, again, these have to work themselves out at these points. I appreciate there is a lot there, but I really would want to emphasize for the purposes of today's discussion that we can't sit back comfortable in the knowledge that, 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 that you know, costs will be reserved to the hearing of the action. Don't worry about it. Carry on. Things have changed a lot in the 18 months that, that have passed and we need to, as a group to be aware of that. And I think, Brendan, that's such an important point for all of us, because ultimately, um, if costs are an immediate issue, for everyone, particularly for a plaintiff, it can certainly um, put the brakes on someone bringing an injunction. And I suppose Thank you very much. Um, to finish off, I was just wondering if any of you would like to comment on the trends on injunctions on and your views on what has happened over the last 18 months, where or what are the next steps or where things might go. Oshin, if you wanted to give us a few words on that to finish up. Yeah, I think, well, a couple of things, Anne. I mean, picking up on what Brendan says, I think it, it is right to, to sound that bell, that um it's more likely now that costs do get ordered one way or the other after an interlocutory. That's certainly true. I think that the second point is that probably employers are more aware that it's a minefield going down the disciplinary route in terms of an injunction because the, the courts are very much alive to the fact that the jurisprudence does allow them to intervene if there's any breach of fair procedures. And then I think the other point that is coming up a bit now is the one that Catherine made when she referred to the Roland case, that if you're at a pure investigation stage, um, the courts are very reluctant to intervene. So those would be trends I, I would be seeing. In terms of mediation, I think Brendan made a good point about that, and, and you've also touched on it. There is a big advantage to mediation. Obviously, now a statutory declaration is required when you issue your summons that you advise the client about it. And particularly in an employment case with some employers, they can be reluctant if there's an ongoing process to broach terminating the employee or to broach coming to a deal because that can be interpreted by the employees. Look, they've made their mind up. They want me out. 
And, you know, particularly in the maybe the public sector or semi-state sector, employers can be reluctant to, to signal that. But mediation, if I can use this phrase, is somewhat of a safe space. And equally from an employee's point of view, bearing in mind when you're going to court, you are asking the judge to preserve the employment relationship. Um, and that will be to the forefront of the case that's being made. But of course, the relationship can become so damaged by the exchange of affidavits that an employee can feel, you know, I am now really open to exploring exiting. Uh, and um, again, mediation allows that to happen. And obviously, in terms of maybe coming to an agreement as to how an investigation might be carried out or how a process might be dealt with, um, mediation again allows through the course of a day, parties to explore more easily ways of maybe retuning an investigation. If someone's not happy with it being done internally, maybe the employer can propose somebody external and an employee can agree to that. So I do think there is a lot to be said for, I mean, put it this way, from an employer's point of view, they'll almost never regret resolving one of these disputes early, if I can put it like that. And there's a lot to be said for mediation in that context. So... Those would be the sort of trends I would see at this stage. I mean, it, it does remind me that going back to the former president, uh, Peter Kelly, he, he was somewhat of a, a fan. That probably sounds a slightly superficial way to describe it. But he was certainly very disposed to interlocutory employment injunctions because I think he realized that they tended of their nature to lead to difficult disputes being resolved early because they bring things to a head. Everyone is focused on getting to the bottom of the case in their affidavits. So there is something still very attractive and satisfactory about it as a process, but you have to be prepared to use all of the tools available, negotiating, mediating, and including parallel to that, you know, um, fencing pretty hard in court. But when it does lead to a tricky dispute, potentially being resolved within weeks, people will usually look back and say, well, you know, that was worth doing rather than revisiting it a year later in the Labour Court. Great. Thanks very much, Oisin. Um, Also to Brendan and Catherine, I, I thought that was excellent. An insightful whistle-stop tour through injunctions. I'd like to thank you all for coming um, and also to our members for listening. Our next event will be a webinar in September and it'll be on the new bullying code of practice. So I hope you all have a lovely summer and we will uh, see you in September. Thank you. Thank you.